for leading us in worship with such great hymns of this Christmas season. Delighted. Are we getting accustomed to the idea that Christmas is this week? Anybody there yet? Um, with all that this season has become, above and beyond all that it was intended to be, this opportunity we have to be in worship kind of brings our focus and our heart back in the reason we gather around worshiping Christ in this time of the year. Um, I read to you the, the text from Luke chapter 1, um, Zechariah's prophecy that comes at the birth of his son, John. We've been in a series with Pastor Joseph where he's presented questions to us with regards to this season of the year. And so he asked me would I address the question, why Christmas? And um, perhaps the, the question could be better addressed if we look at the who and the what uh, to understand the why we come to this place in Christmas. And also that we might look at Christmas maybe appreciating God's perspective. I don't know that he intended it for a holiday. I don't know that God's intention was that we would mark our calendar on a particular day because there seems to be confusion about what day he was actually born. No real specific record in the scriptures, but we celebrate his birth. Maybe intentional on God's part, that it would be left a bit of a mystery as to which day and which night he was actually born. And he highlights those pieces of Christ's birth which relate to the prophecies of the Old Testament that say this is the Messiah, the, the promised one. By way of a little bit of a background, I'm going to touch on this morning our Christmas need and God's Christmas love. So those are the, the two general areas we want to address. Um, Zechariah, in this time in his life, a, a priest, his order, his division, was assigned the responsibility for caring for the temple. And specifically, he drew the lot by God's providence, that he would enter into the temple, the Holy of Holies, and he would burn incense in the morning and the evening, which was the traditional custom for priests to do to maintain, maintain this vigil of worshiping God. So he had been chosen by the lot to go into this holy place, and as he's in this holy place, he's visited by an angel, or maybe we might better say the angel. He's visited by one of the only two angels we know the names of. And so he's visited by an angel, and the angel conveys to him that his wife Elizabeth will bear a child who will be great in the sight of God, and even before he's born, this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to call many of Israel back to God and make them ready, a people for God, and his name will be called John. Now, Zechariah is in a bit of disbelief. He says, how can I know for sure? I mean, we're both mature people, well beyond Children, this seems a little bit hard to believe. And I think the angel of God maybe becomes a little bit indignant. Do you know who you're talking to? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of Almighty God. I have been sent to communicate this message to you, and all that I've told you will, in fact, come to pass. But in the meantime, until it does, you're going to be without speech. You're not going to be able to talk. You're going to be silent. Take some time to reflect on this experience, Zechariah, and watch what God is about to do. So in the meantime, this same mighty angel, Gabriel, visits this one favored young woman, Mary. And he communicates to her that while she's a virgin, 
she's going to give birth to a child and she's trying to understand how this is going to happen to one who's a virgin and Gabriel explains that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and God is going to overshadow you and this child that you're going to conceive will be known as the Son of God. Mary ponders these things. Probably after she comes past a time of shock and awe, she ponders just what has happened in her life. And in the sixth month of Elizabeth, her relative, she moves to Elizabeth's home to visit her. And in her arrival, Elizabeth, her relative, moved by the Spirit of God, both the child within her leaps for joy that the mother of her Lord is in her presence and she begins under the influence of God's Spirit to prophesy the Magna Carta and, and brings to the attention of all the people of this record that we have of God speaking truth over Mary's life which certainly comes to assure this young child soon to be a mother, not just a mother for the first time but the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Elizabeth gives birth to her child, and as the people gather around, because it's just an incredible experience that this woman in her mature place of life, beyond childbearing, is now pregnant with child, and she gives birth to a child, excuse me, a male, and, and they're saying, well, what will his name be? Uh, certainly it's going to be Zechariah after the father, a family name, and believe it or not, Elizabeth speaks up. She says, no, he's not going to be named Zechariah. His name will be John. And they say, well, nobody in your family is named John. And so they turn to Zechariah and ask him, you know, tell us, is this, is this what you're going to name this child? And he somehow communicates in writing that the child's name shall be John. And at that instant, his mouth is loosed, his tongue is loosed, and he can speak. And so all this wonder of God moving on their normal life to make it extraordinary comes to fulfillment, fruition, as Zechariah now begins to anticipate, based on the wonders God's displayed to this point, that his son indeed is going to be forerunner to the Lord, the Messiah. And so Zechariah makes this claim that we read as our opening text. And I just want you to take note of this aspect that you see throughout the Christmas story, throughout the scriptures related to this, uh, our Christmas need and God's Christmas love, this God coming and people being redeemed. Two activities that are happening by the work of God. So through his prophecy, he says, uh, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's got the sense of assurance that this is true because of what's just now been happening in their life and an awareness by the fact that the Spirit of God has given him this revelation that the Messiah is come to his people to redeem them. He has raised up a horn of salvation, a horn being that strong part of a beast, the horn representing their strength, a strong horn of salvation. And he says that we're going to have salvation from our enemies and those who hate us. Salvation from our enemies and those who hate us. And God will show mercy 
and that he's going to remember his promise and his oath. He's going to be true to the word of all his prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah. God is going to show mercy to a people undeserving, and he's going to fulfill his word. Messiah has come to you and is redeeming you. He goes on to prophesy that he rescues us from our enemies, rescues, so as to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. So this is the work that's announced by Zechariah at the birth of his son in anticipation of the Savior, who he refers to as the rising sun will come to us from heaven. For what purpose? To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. You know, for those of us who've lived in spaces in our life where a peace that may have been fairly usual commonplace, where that peace departs from our soul and we begin to experience misery, sadness, disappointment, we recognize what it's like to be absent of peace. And I know from my own life experience, when I was without peace, I so earnestly desired to taste once again a peace that would let me rest and settle and be still and not filled with anxiety. So God is going to send the rising sun and he will come to us. He's going to shine his light into our darkness and the shadow of our death and he's going to guide our feet. So our Christmas need. When I was a child, I was probably about 8 to 10 years of age, involved in scouting, did a lot of adventuresome things. Guys that I hung around with, they were in scouting. They did the same kind of crazy things that I would do. Uh, I remember we left my home. We headed down to a place that we referred to as High Banks. The High Banks represented uh, a break-off from level land down to a small river that ran through our community. And in the spring of the year, as the weather was just turning where you'd want to go outside and do things as young boys, we all headed out to High Banks, and we were going to scale the cliffs of High Banks. So we got a big climbing rope, and we hooked it on to some kind of secure point on the top and threw the rope down the side to the bottom right about where the river ran close to the bank. And there was about maybe this much space, level ground, between the rushing spring water that was full up by way of all the melted snow and ice and the slippery, muddy slope that we referred to as high banks. And the rope came down. The one guy, the bigger guy, uh, Dick Henderson, was up at the top of the hill and he was sort of on belay as we were each then trying to warn Sparks and Jim Park climb up this rope to the top of high banks. And so Warren was on his way up, and he was climbing up about halfway, and somehow he started to slip and slide, lost his grip on the rope, and came sliding down the muddy side of the high banks. He was coming down pretty fast, and he was coming down right by me. And uh, I gathered that he didn't want to go into the water by himself, so he grabbed a hold of me, and he pulled me in as well. So we're both in this rushing water going down the river where he's climbing all over my head, and I'm, I'm just... In the moment, in the moment trying to survive. Somehow, as we're moving down the river, there was a fallen tree across the river, part of the river, uh, at least a branch, so that I reached up and put my arms over it, as did Warren. Either he had his arms over me or over the branch. 
But the water was so swift that put our feet right up horizontal to the water and just kept pulling on us as we're holding on to this branch. The branch, as you would suspect in the story, breaks. And as the branch breaks, it doesn't break completely, but it breaks enough to turn the branch over so that it goes into the bank. Our friend Dick ran down along as he was following us through the river. He runs down to the side and he starts reaching in and pulling us up out of the water. This was great adventure for us. Did I know that I could have perished? That I was facing great peril? In the moment, no. It was just adventure and uh, survival and just all those uh, immediate instincts that you have when you're in the moment. But as I later thought about it in maybe a more mature fashion, I realized that same river had taken the life of a young kid who had fallen through the ice and perished under that water, under the ice. And I got to thinking to myself, I have no idea what was beyond where I was at the moment of rescue. But likely, perishing. Oh God, I was that close to the edge of my life on the other side of which would have been perishing, lost, swallowed up in a moment, and done. I needed to be rescued. I didn't even fully understand what I needed to be rescued from. I didn't know what awaited me further down the river. But in that moment, I recognized we needed help. We needed to be rescued. Unaware completely of all the danger that I faced. And in that moment, just excited by what was going on in our life experience and telling the story about how we fell into the river and floated down and ran home and changed clothes without mom ever knowing. Only later on to think about the fact that that could have been the moment that ended my life. And I wouldn't even have been fully aware what awaited me. I want to share some scriptures that talk about our need that sometimes we're not even aware of. So if we were turning in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Our need. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You know, when we're living in that place... We don't know it. We don't realize that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We're not really aware that there's any other way to follow other than the way of the world. How would we know? That's maybe all we've ever been taught. We wouldn't know that we're under the influence of a ruler of the kingdom of this air, that there's some kind of spiritual dimension that's at work to hold people in the ways of the world and in their transgression and sin, living disobedient to God, we might not even know that there is a God. All of us also lived among them at one time, craving the gratifi- uh, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So in that place in our living experience, 
we almost feel compelled in certain directions where we can hardly help ourselves. But we don't really know there's another way. We're, we're not knowledgeable that there might be some other type of living. We're living the only way we know how to live, the way the world's taught us to live, and all of us are basically pursuing those things that we crave for some kind of gratification. And you can fill in the blank with what it is that you may have been craving or maybe even at times are tempted to crave now and satisfy. But it leaves us in that posture like the rest where we were by nature deserving of a wrath from God that comes to those who are disobedient. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21-22. Just look at 21. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was in a position to be at enmity with God, that I was in a camp with the enemy, and that I was opposed to God. In fact, I pretty much thought I was a Christian. I went to church. I was a good boy from the time I was a young kid. I pretty well would have answered the question in an affirmative yes if somebody asked you, asked me, are you a Christian? I would have assumed that I was a Christian and yet I was alienated from God. In my mind, I was contrary to him, living according to my own dictates and what I wanted to do. And then in Isaiah 59, Verses 1, 2, and 9 through 13. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. So the problem isn't on God's part. It's not because he's lacking in some way from being able to rescue, secure us in salvation. His arm isn't too short, his ear isn't too dull, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then picking up in verse 9. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadow. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if we were in twilight. Among the strong, we're like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance. But it's far away, for our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God. So from my recollection, and I came to faith as a 19-year-old approaching 20 in, February, in January, January the 7th, I will have known Christ and walked with him for 50 years. Oh my goodness. I remember at a much younger age thinking about I wonder if I will walk with Jesus until the day I die. I wonder if I will be a believer who knows Christ for 50 years. That seems like an awfully long way off. 
50 years of knowing Jesus, my life essentially derived from this relationship of a loving God. But before meeting Christ, I didn't know it at the time. I was existing. I was getting by. I was living from day to day. I was managing. I was holding on. I was looking forward to weekends for reasons to get excited. I was looking forward to a girlfriend or some relationship that would allow me to think beyond my immediate life where maybe there would be something exciting to be looking forward to. Fat chance on my part. But at any rate, um, how about a life, about living without life, existing, living without hope, avoiding, living without purpose, goal setting, of course. You just set goals to keep your life moving forward towards something that you can reach out for, likely to find that when you reach your ultimate goal that you set, it didn't really satisfy you even after six Super Bowl rings. So some people might recognize, um, I fall short of God's glory. I'm not living life in a way that would actually please God. I don't ever give much attention to God. My life's good. I have all I need. I'm making it. I'll just say this one more time. When I thought that way, I did not realize that after I got on the other side of believing, that was existing. I existed in living, but I did not know life until I found Christ or he found me and we came into a relationship. So this is how the scripture describes it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where the word is written to the church of Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Okay, so prior to this, most of what's being described by way of our existence apart from God might categorize us as evil. And we would go, well, I'm not evil. I'm not wicked. That's certainly not talking about me. I don't have blood on my hands for Pete's sakes. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. Okay, maybe this does begin to address me then. Maybe that starts to narrow this down and broaden at the same time, so I feel like this is addressing me. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So now we've come to the place where we recognize that most of us may be in the place of having a Christmas need. Alienated from God, not in relationship with him, not accepted by him, not heard by him. Scripture tells us there is none righteous, not a single one. Our righteousness would be compared to filthy rags. Every one of us has gone astray 
like a sheep. We are in the category apart from Christ of not having experienced the light yet coming into our darkness, thinking that our darkness is light. We are yet living in a place where the life of Christ has not come into our living, thinking that our living is not just existing because we've never experienced or tasted the reality of a relationship with a God who absolutely loves you. So the story goes like this. I was a chaplain at VMI. It was my night to perform duty in the barracks. Uh, duty in the barracks meant that you stayed up all night checking on cadets throughout the evening, going by their rooms, looking in to make sure they were behaving themselves. You had an assistant who did the same. I had to preach the next day. It was a Saturday night. It was close to Christmas. It was maybe a week prior to this one. I was preparing the message, and I felt like, God, I know you want me to talk about light, but I'm just, I'm just not sure where this is going. I'd done some study, made some preparation, but just wasn't settled. So here I am in the office, sitting at the desk, kind of going through the scriptures, asking God, where am I going with this? In the meantime, my assistant is out checking out the barracks. He's going room by room. He eventually gets to a part of the barracks called the barracks study room. He walks into the barracks study room, and what do you think he found? Saturday night, not any cadets. So, Saturday night, the place is pretty empty, with the exception of the fact that toward the back of the room, there was this door about this high up off the floor. So it was a door like that, regular-sized door, about three feet up off the floor. And normally that door would be locked, but now the door had been busted open from the other side. And he looked at the floor, and there were boot prints walking across the floor on the carpet from mud. And so the, off, the assistant uh, officer in charge comes back to me and says, you won't believe this. I was just down in the barrack study room and I walk in there and the door in the back, which is typically locked with a padlock, had been dislodged by somebody kicking from the inside to get out. I could see their footprints going up. He said, I'll bet you I know what happened. On this one part of the building, it was all under renovation. Another whole set of barracks, a third the size of what was already in place. They were in construction phase and they had, uh, they had roughed out a lot in the crawl space underneath what would be the barracks. Somehow, a couple of adventuresome cadets came in through a door on the far side where the construction took place and had made their way inside underneath all the construction when the door closed behind them and they couldn't get out. So here they are making their way through all this stuff, the wires and the wood and, and loose stuff on the ground and dirt and mud and and probably just looking for some way to get out of here. Like, how are we going to get out of this space? And so they move enough so they see some light, and it turns out to be the light going around the seam of the door that goes into the barrack study room. So they make their way over there, and they start kicking and kicking and kicking till finally the door breaks off the hinge, and they're able to get out of there and probably have a story to tell. So as, as the officer that assisted me is telling me this, I'm going... Gosh, can you imagine what it would be like to be trapped in that darkness with all this stuff hanging around your head and not being able to see any of the light and just going, how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to get out of this? And then desperately kicking and kicking until the door breaks open and you get out and come into the light and go, oh my gosh, we got out of there. So I thought, this is the word I'll preach tomorrow morning that the light came into the darkness. So, little did I know that at the same time I'm preparing this message, 
on the ground level of our barracks. On the second level, a cadet who's a junior is walking the stoops. He's walking the stoops and he's crying. I didn't know this. He's walking the, the stoops and he's crying. He's crying because he'd been in an intimate relationship with a girlfriend, came to the point where he quit loving her, but hadn't stopped lusting after her, and so stayed in this sexual relationship until finally he said, this is wrong to do. This was an upstanding cadet, by the way. He was an honor court uh, prosecutor. He was a chemistry major, academic star kind of a guy. Uh, an upstanding cadet. So he'd gone from this relationship to this lustful ship to this pornography. And once he got into the pornography, he got ensnared. He got so ensnared, he got afraid that he could not get out. And he's just out walking the stoops, worried, burdened. How do I get out of this? How can I get free of this? He comes back to his room. His roommate happens to be watching that night facing the Giants. He thought it was just a football movie. So he sat down to watch it and then discovered it was a movie about faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of the film, my friend Gene turned to his roommate and said, um, are you going to chapel tomorrow? He said, well, yeah. He said, well, could I come? He said, sure. That morning as I'm preaching this word about being trapped in the darkness of the crawl space, finish preaching, give opportunity to people to respond. About six rows back on my right-hand side, I walk back and there's a cadet there with his head down on the pew in front of him, just going like this. I walk over to him and I put my hand on him on his shoulder and I said, uh, Gene, are you all right? He said, I'm trapped in the crawl space. I'm in the darkness and I can't get out. I don't know what to do. So we took some time to talk and to pray with each other. And I said, can I see you Monday? Can you come down to the office? So he came down on Monday. And he related this full story to me there in my office. And so I encouraged him, Gene, if you will cry out to God with all your heart, God will rescue you. I had never heard any soul cry out to God so fervently as this young man to the point where I was sure everybody else in the building was hearing his cry for help. His face was buried in his hands as he cried, Oh God, you got to save me. You got to help me, please. Kind of walked him through the prayer of salvation. He looked up, his face was radiant. God had touched his life. The next week, we were celebrating Christmas in our home. Big Christmas tree, candlelights, all these cadets, music playing, singing around the piano, back and forth, cadets in their uniform singing, looking through some of the hymn verses. We would stop and say, what does this verse mean to you? And at one point, we, uh, born that man more, may, no more may die, born to give them second birth. I said, anybody have a comment? Gene, in front of my fireplace, raised up his hand and said, I do. I've experienced that birth and my life is changing. Hallelujah. Gene had come out of the darkness, no longer trapped. We need Christmas because we need God's Christmas love. We need God's Christmas love. In Exodus chapter 2, we have the, the description of the Israelites being in bondage for longer than they cared to ever remember, generation after generation, living in bondage and oppression. So in Exodus 2, in verses 32, or 23 to 25, 
During the long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery, cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of their enemies and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. God has come down because he's responding to our groan, our moan, our cry, our desperation. I would say to you oftentimes, our groaning, our moaning, our desperation, it's not even necessarily directed to God. It's just an expression of what our feelings are telling us about life. Like, I can't live like this much longer. But for those who have cried out, Psalm 107 repeats over and over the wonderful working of God in response to the heart that cries out. Give thanks to the Lord for God. He is good and His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord, He comes down to us to redeem us. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those He redeemed from the hand, the enemy, foe. Those He gathered from the lands, east, west, north, south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distresses. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled. There was none to help them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered afflictions because of their iniquities. They loathed all food. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word, and he healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love in response to their desperate cry. Seems like God has a pattern of responding to desperate cries murmurings, groanings, mournings. Psalm 50, 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you. And as a result, you'll glorify me. So this Christmas love of God is pretty well summarized in John three sixteen. Most of us, I think, are pretty familiar. For God so loved the world, maybe a more right way to understand, for God in this way, loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have eternal life. You will know the foretaste of heaven. You will know God in a personal way. You will experience eternal life 
in the moment that you put faith and trust in Jesus Christ crying out to him. For God in this way loved the world. Just before that is a story about how Moses lifted up the serpent on a staff and everybody that looked to that serpent was spared death. He says, so in the same way, as you look to Christ lifted up on the cross, his sacrifice for your sake, placing faith in that Christ, you will come to know him, eternal life, heaven reserved for you. Now here's what it goes on to say. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son into the world that through him we might be saved. God sent This is the love of God at Christmas. God sent. God sent. He dispatched his son. So, here's another story that might help you relate. I was on Army Reserve duty down in Atlanta. Seven and a half hour drive. I typically set aside about three or four days. I do it all at once so I didn't have to make multiple trips down there. So I'm down there for like a four day stint. At that point in my career, I'm a I'm a colonel, a full colonel. I make good money on the Army Reserve weekends. And when I've got four days, I'm going to make a pretty good paycheck. On the first night, I get a call from my wife at 9.30 in the evening. She says, Jim, we've had a tragedy here in Lexington. I'm seven and a half hours away. The Joseph family, Chris and Dan Joseph, just air medevac their two-year-old Jonathan from Lexington to UVA Hospital. It doesn't look good. I think you might want to come home. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to give up four days of pay. Oh my goodness, it's 9.30 at night. I'm not sleeping tonight. Oh my gosh, it's going to be a nine hour to get there. I said, I think you're right. I think I need to do that. We love this family and there can't be anything worse than what they're going through. So I reported to my seniors, said I'm going to be checking out. I'm sorry, I've got to go take care of an emergency. Started driving at 10.30. Drove through the night, stopped someplace near Virginia, got a quick nap, drove home, changed clothes, drove on up to UVA. And when I arrived there, Dan Joseph and his wife, Chris Joseph, were sitting knee to knee, almost like a Mary and Joseph picture with their little child on their lap. And they were in the throes of a major acceptance of truth that Jonathan had died. Their prayer... Oh God, you gave us this son. We've stewarded his life for two years. We have loved him. We've shared you with him. God, in your wisdom, we are giving our son back to you. We give you, Jonathan. People watched this family experience an immense grace from God at the loss of their child. And their testimony reached many, many souls with the reality of Jesus. It was remarkable to me that in that God sent me to the Joseph family in their place of great, great need. Following that event, Dan and Chris Joseph could not say enough about this chaplain who drove through the night to be with them in the hospital as they prayed and gave their child back to God. Small sacrifice on my behalf. Didn't get any sleep. Lost out on three or four days of pay. 
but to express the love of God for this family, felt compelled I need to be there with my wife's encouragement, made the sacrifice and went. You know, God has made a sacrifice that far exceeds that sacrifice. And the impression that my sacrifice made on Chris and Dan Joseph so that they would never forget it, the sacrifice that God has made on our behalf in sending his son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. So just to, to give us some appreciation, Jesus, Godhead, glorified in eternal glory, angels, archangels, worshiping and praising and exalting him, he leaves his position and his posture. At God the Father's bidding, he forms himself into the shape of a human baby embryo in the womb of a little woman's body and takes on the shape and flesh of humanity. He made sacrifice. Max Licato in God Draws Near says, She touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? This baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. He made sacrifice. And worshiping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. From a place of preeminence to a place of exceeding lowliness. From a place to glory to a place of obscurity and unknown. From a place of honor to a place of neglect. From a place of boundless, creative, powerful to vulnerable, helpless, needy. This is sacrifice. And this is just as we believing people know, the beginning. From space without dimension to a womb, from the highest heaven to a Bethlehem, a poverty-stricken Bethlehem, from spirit to flesh, from agelessness to newborn first birth and first breath, from word of God to unable to utter a word at all, from dwelling in light unapproachable to residing with us in our darkness. This initiates sacrifice in God sending Jesus to dwell with us. Ephesians 2.13, but now you who are once separated, alienated, far off, groping in darkness, you have been brought near because God saw, heard, loved, sent, and ultimately gave Jesus for our sakes. Christ said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news. He has sent me to rescue those who are in prison and bring those in darkness into the light. God sent him specifically for the purpose of us. God has come to us. Romans 3, 25, 26 in the contemporary English version says, God treats everyone alike. He accepts people only because they have faith in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but God 
treats us much better than we deserve. And because of Jesus Christ, he freely accepts us and sets us free from our sins, our guilt, our bondage. God sent Christ to be our sacrifice. Christ offered his lifeblood so by faith in him we could come to God. So how close is God to us? And I pose the question particularly for those who are not yet experiencing this life-changing faith. How close is God to you? The scripture says, the word of faith is nigh thee. It's even in your mouth. That if you would confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you're this close to eternity. God sent his son Jesus all the way to the place where today, as you sit hearing these truths, the word of faith is nigh you. It's even in your mouth. God can come no nearer than to bring his truth right into your experience of breathing, existing, and with a single expression of faith, crying out to him, God, I'm not the person I'm supposed to be. I have fallen short of your expectation for my living. I want to be forgiven. I want to be right with you. I want to be in a relationship. Will you make me the person you created me to be? In Christmas, we're aware of our need. In Christmas, we're aware of God's love. And God has loved us by sending sacrificially Jesus from glory to manger, from the presence of God into our presence. Maybe the Spirit of God is speaking to you today. Maybe you can sense the word of faith is in your mouth. Maybe you recognize that with a word of expression based on your choice, you can move in the faith that God has given you to say, yes, please forgive me. I want out of the darkness. I want out of existence. I want to know life. Pray with me. Oh God, that you would come this near to us. That you would make yourself available to us, approachable to us. That you would present yourself to us in a way that we could by faith take one step, close the remaining inch and come into relationship knowing you, forgiven by you, life being transformed by you. Oh God, may we taste and see that you are good. Holy Spirit of God, I yield. Take your word. Let it penetrate each of our souls. 
May we give praise to God for his loving kindness. And may we fall on our knees and make room in our heart for the sent one. Hear our prayer, O oh God. Amen.